Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3. And uh, I've called the sermon, Sin, Satan, and Safety. And it'll become obvious as we go through it. Um, I hope that you've not seen some of the unedited videos available regarding the attack on Israel by Hamas on October 7th. We need no other historical picture of what pure evil looks like. Plus, we Christians know from what the Bible says that we are all fallen. That means we're sinful human beings who could be capable of such atrocities. I have previously used the incident during the Nuremberg trials. Dr. Joseph Mengele, who had conducted inhuman experiments on prisoners at Auschwitz concentration camp, was on trial when a Jewish ex-prisoner was to testify. But when he saw Mengele, he fainted and later said that he was shocked to see Mengele looked like a normal person. And then he realized, this Jewish man, that he himself could be guilty of unspeakable evil. It brings up one of the most perplexing questions of postmodern thinking or of philosophical discussion. As was true after 9-11, there are many pundits on our various screens pontificating about how such evil could possibly exist. Where did evil come from? Did God create evil? What can we do about evil? Are human beings basically good at their core or basically bad? Is evil inherent in us or does it have to be learned? Genesis 3 answers those questions for us. So we must start with Satan. Who is he? When was he created? How did he become the personification of evil? Well, Satan is a fallen angel, a fallen angel. When was he created? Well, after day seven, on day seven, everything was good. So it was after that. Uh, Satan fell, though, before Adam and Eve sinned. There's a passage in Ezekiel 28 about the fall of Satan and another one in Isaiah 14. I'll just stick with the Isaiah 14 one right now for the sake of time because my sermon's going to go well over an hour and a half today. <laughs> Don't have any fear. Isaiah 14, 12 to 15 reads, have, How have you... How you have fallen, I do it better if I close my eyes, and how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, there's five of these, I will ascend to heaven. I will rise, raise my throne above the stars of God. I will, three, sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. And finally, I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Jesus himself said in Luke 10, 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, 8, and 9, read this way, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, 
and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not, a strong, he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. Now, this is Genesis. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. First John tells us that he's in a, in, in a real sense in charge today of what's going on. So we have five I wills, five points of pride. Pride is the desire to be like God in charge of our own lives. I mean, how silly is that? Pride diminishes us. Humility magnifies God, and then he raises us up. This is interesting from a man by the name of Oswald. He writes, why will we not learn how destructive pride really is? The answer is that God is ultimate and we are not. Any attempt to make ourselves ultimate has results that are just as predictable as are the results of jumping off a tall building. This is a great illustration. We have been made to reflect the glory of the only God. If a mirror says, you're looking at a mirror, no, I will reflect only myself, and pulls down all the shades and turns off the lights, should not be surprised to discover there is nothing to reflect. The mirror has violated the terms of its creation. So it is... When we humans say, I will live only for myself, we should not be surprised to discover that there is no life to be lived. Satan was beautiful because he reflected God's glory. Ezekiel's passage describes Satan like precious gems such as diamonds, which do not shine in the dark. They need light to demonstrate the reflective beauty. Satan was originally created to reflect God's glory. When our lives reflect God, then they are beautiful to God. Now, as we've been going through Genesis, we know there were two trees in the garden. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God told Adam, and Adam was to tell his wife, you'll remember it from last week, God says, you are free. That's so important. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely, that word's important, you will surely die. In other words, God had created Adam and his wife, the woman, to be able to make choices. Genuine love needs the ability to choose. C.S. Lewis does a great thing on this in his Mere Christianity book. If I were to program my phone to say every 15 minutes, I love you, I love you, I love you, wouldn't be very impressive because I programmed it just to say that and it doesn't even know what it's doing. But if my wife tells me every day, I love you, then that means a lot more because she doesn't have to say that. Adam and Eve in paradise, everything they needed, a relationship with their creator, a meaningful life in marriage, and there'd be no reason for 
any knowledge of good versus evil. Evil is caused by choosing the wrong instead of the right, the lie instead of the truth. Evil existed at this time because Satan had chosen himself over God. Adam and Eve would soon make the wrong choice by choosing a lie over the truth. The fact they did so was evil because God had clearly communicated to them the truth, and all they had to say to Satan's lie was, go away. Satan had already fallen, but that was none of their matter. God would take care of that if they would just obey him fully. Now, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 reads, look in your Bibles, now the serpent was more crafty, more crafty than any of the wild animals, the Lord God, that's Yahweh Elohim, we talked about that last week, that the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, this is, this is Satan saying to the woman, did God really say you, by the way, the you is plural, there's somebody else there too, did God really say you too must not eat from any tree in the garden? Evil is always distinguished in an attractive package for the purposes of deception. Adam and Eve have been given dominion over the animals, including the reptiles. So this serpent was no threat to Eve and was probably considered very attractive. Remember, God made everything good, so she was completely off guard when approached in this way. So Satan immediately attacked God's word. Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You see what's happening here? Satan is distorting God's word. When Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, Satan twisted the word of God, and Jesus straightened it out by putting it back into biblical context. Jesus used the scriptures to let Satan know that he would trust God to feed him. Satan had said, turn this rock, this stone, into bread. And Jesus let him know, I won't do that. Uh, that Jesus said, I would never test God. And Jesus said that he would worship and serve God and only God. That is why the Bible is so important. As we learn the scriptures together, we are able to understand them correctly, in context. The story of the fall of Adam and Eve is not just about them, but about all of us. This is the story about the power of temptation. They lived in a perfect environment. They had no issues in their backgrounds. Their parents were God himself, perfectly loving and trustworthy. They only had to enjoy God's presence, serve him, and be completely satisfied with their lives. Temptation was the first thing that Jesus defeated when he was anointed by the Spirit at John's baptism and was driven into the desert by the Holy Spirit. He defeated temptation by obeying God's word. Hebrews tells us, the book of Hebrews, that he never sinned. He was perfect God. He was God and man, fully God, fully man. And somebody would say, I've had various arguments about this <clears throat> over the years, but, but could he have sinned? Well, he didn't have a sin nature, but he was perfect man and perfect God. Well, then what's the big deal that he 
What's it mean when it said he was tempted by sin? Well, not to overquote C.S. Lewis, but C.S. Lewis really is helpful here because he talks about how it would be for a holy God who is now incarnated in a human being, how would it be for him to face sin? It would be horrible, absolutely horrible, terrible. But he didn't sin. And we have been put, because of Jesus, he's, he's our high, perfect high priest, but because of what he did, we no longer have to sin. We'll talk about that more later, and I talk about it all the time, but we don't have to. We do still have a sin nature. But like what Jesus did, we can do that. With the Holy Spirit, we don't have to sin. Well, I know we will, and we do. I sinned once. <laughs> so... We have heard God speak in the opening chapters of Genesis. Now we hear Satan speak for the first time. Alan Ross, a tremendous scholar, writes this. The word of the Lord brought life and order. The word of the serpent brought deception and death. By its very nature, truth is older than falsehood. God's words came before the serpent's words, but the serpent's words were more effective because... The humans, the two of them in this case, did not know God's words well enough. So this story emphasizes for us how important it is to study, to memorize, and internalize God's word. So the woman now is going to answer. And it says in verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree. Notice she doesn't name exactly what the tree is. The tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you'll die. She left out a word. You will surely die. God was very definite with this command. He, wasn't, he was absolutely clear with this command. But she just left that out, and she doesn't even name the tree. So that tells us, first of all, that Adam did pass on God's command. But it seems Adam let his wife down here. He, he is present as this is happening. In a biblical marriage covenant, the husband is to protect his wife. In the same sacrificial way Jesus did by dying so we can live. We are the church, the bride of Christ, and Jesus is our head. So either Eve was a lousy, lousy listener or Adam was incomplete in telling her what God said. Now, I would speculate that Eve wanted to hear what the serpent would say next. She was very curious uh, about the claims of the serpent. Be careful. Don't be curious about what is forbidden. When we childproof a home by covering the light sockets and warning our little ones about not touching the top of the stove, we have to watch closely because we know the next thing that will happen when we're not looking is that he or she will head for the stove or the light socket. Curiosity killed the cat. Now, that's only a proverb, but its meaning disregarded has ruined the witness of many a Christian. 
If you read Christian history, you will soon discover that when God's word is not front and center, God's people become anemic and the church is eaten up by the society. When Satan saw the chink in Eve's armor, he attacked at her point of doubt. Look at verse 4. He doesn't forget the word. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. He's, he's quoting God. As Satan first attacks God's word, and now his character, he's suggesting God is jealous and doesn't even want Eve to reach her potential. Look at verse 5. The serpent again. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like, God, she'll be an I will, I will, I will. You'll know what good and evil is. Now, the devil told the truth here. God wanted Adam and Eve to be innocent of evil, innocent of evil. I remember as a child thinking that my dad and mom had everything under control, and I had nothing to worry about except to figure out how to manipulate them to get whatever I wanted. It never occurred to me that I had anything to worry about when it came to food and shelter, and I certainly slept soundly every night believing that nothing bad was going to happen. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't even have been able to conceive something bad hurting me. Nevertheless, I still wanted more than my much wiser parents would give me. But Jesus came to tell us that because God is our Father, there is nothing to worry about. We need not worry about what we will wear or eat or uh, where we will live. He promises to take care of all that. That's in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But Satan often whispers to us today, God does not always cause everything in your life to work out for your good. God has just wound up the universe, and you're a victim of chance with no assurance of eternal bliss. Eve was already like God. I mean, she was made in God's image. What else could she want? It is a curse to think we have to take care of ourselves. When I was first saved, I was, had been really into self-help books and, you know, help myself. And when I first got saved, I found this preacher on TV. He's hopefully in heaven now. And uh, uh, I watched him a lot because he reminded me of my self-help books. And he had a saying, the, the, ten, uh, the ten most important words, he said, in your life. And I quoted these words all the time. If it is to be, it is up to me. I thought that was the greatest thing. If it is to be, it is up to me. And I'd be talking to friends about being successful and all that, and I'd tell them, what, do you don't, what are the 10 words? If it is to be, it is up to me. Now, some say that's good psychology, that preacher did, but it's terrible theology. John Walton writes, God offered nothing less to Adam and Eve than the privilege of freedom and the joy of dependence. Dependence. In rejecting dependence on God, people choose a far more costly dependency on themselves and their own resources. In seeking independence, freedom, and power, they only forge new chains. 
It's a trap. One of Satan's biggest lies is that we can sin and get away with it. Satan only reminds us of the benefits, not the responsibilities or the consequences of ignoring God's commands. Satan told Eve uh, what she would gain, but failed to tell her what she would lose. Expelled from the garden, she would gain toil and hardship and pain and isolation and fear and difficult relationships and guilt and embarrassment and worry and death. Take away complete trust in God, doubt his goodness, and you will fall into temptation. So here's what happens. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree, this is right out of 1 John chapter 5, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable, this is the pride of life, for desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And then it's just... It's almost like, as I, as, just as I read it, it's like it just happened all at once. She took some and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her. And he ate it. Adam was there. He was present with Eve while she was having this conversation. He watched her pick the fruit. Adam sinned willfully, eyes wide open. We can't use rights without hesitation. His sin was freighted with sinful self-interest. He had watched Eve take the fruit and nothing happened to her. He sinned willfully, assuming there would be no consequences. Everything was upside down. Eve followed the snake. Adam followed Eve, and no one followed God. You realize it's not about the fruit, don't you? It's about obedience to God's word. And the result, verse 7, look at the. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves. I actually looked up a little bit about fig leaves. They're about 30 centimeters wide, and, and they would have covered what needed to be covered. And they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now... They understood the possibilities of evil and lust and temptation, all things God never intended them to understand. So where did evil come from? It came from the disobedience of Adam. The book of Romans tells us that clearly. Love needs freedom to be meaningful. Satan's fall did not cause the human race to be riddled with evil, but the temptation Satan offered caused Adam to sin, and the consequences are clearly evident today in the wars and rumors of wars in the world around us, not to mention the many other evidences of Satan's deception. But the good news is, as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit, and we are able to live in obedience to God's word. I know I talk about it all the time. We don't have to sin. But when we do, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins if we confess our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. Is that right? Nevertheless, the damage has been done, and everyone born of Adam is born with a sin nature. Romans again, 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody that was born after this occurred through uh, Adam and his wife uh, having children and on and on uh, now 
their DNA has sin in it, and we all inherit it. In Romans 6.23, it even tells us that the wages of sin, the result of sin, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ, the Messiah, whose name is Jesus, and he's our Lord. So look at verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The way this is written, it, it, most scholars that look at this say it, it, this was probably a daily thing, that every evening as, the, as the, things cooled off a little bit, uh, that Adam and, and the woman, his wife, that they were able to meet with God. I don't know exactly how that worked, except that it did, and they were not afraid of God. Then they had this incredible relationship with God in, in this paradise that they live in. It couldn't, you couldn't even imagine. We couldn't even make up something like that. It's so awesome. So then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Doesn't make any sense at all. But the knowledge of their sin caused them to be separated from God. That's what death is, separation from God. In verse 9, look at it. But the Lord God called to the man. It's almost humorous, really, but, not, but it's pretty sad. Where are you? He knew exactly where they were, of course. And Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. Because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you, he knows the answer, doesn't he? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Boy, I mean the conviction. But now look how the knowledge of good and evil has impacted their lives for the worse. Look what happened. Verse 12. The man says, well, the woman you put here with me, the one that was to be my helper, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Wrong answer. No confession at all. Just blame. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? It, it reads better this way in English from the Hebrew scripture. Uh, it's... Uh, what in the world have you done? What have you done? And the woman says, oh, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. What's interesting here is to think of it this way. Sin never stays in one place. The sins of the parents affect the children. The sin of Eve impacted Adam, and the sin of Adam impacted us. And that's why it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 in the New Living Translation, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Everyone sinned. You see, there are no private sins. All sin is seen by God. And notice first that God does not question the serpent at all. He sentences the serpent. And in verse 14, we read the sentence. So the Lord God said to the serpent, you understand he's talking to Satan, because you have done this, but he's talking as to Satan in the guise of the serpent, 
Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Uh, this is a picture of total defeat. Total defeat. The New Living Translation puts the last part this way. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth and the angels with him. Right back to Genesis. We already read the same scripture a little earlier. But now we have a picture of gospel hope. Now, this is really important. And uh, I, I just been praying that I hope I can really help you to see how amazing this is. Verse 15 and 16 is a picture of gospel hope. So we've had the whole thing is hopeless now, but here's some hope. Verse 15, and I will put, God speaking, remember, enmity, that means hostility, you'll be enemies, between you and the woman. Now catch this. And between your offspring or your seed and hers, and then it said, he, notice it, he will crush your head, a fatal blow. That's how you kill a snake, crush his head. And you will strike his heel, that's a crippling blow. Now, one Hebrew scholar points out that every time the Hebrew word for seed is used, it denotes offspring and is always singular and masculine every time. So Paul writes to the church in, churches in Galatia, Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, and here's what he writes. The promises were spoken to Abraham, that's Genesis chapter 12 where we start to see Abraham, and to his seed, now, that's just like the Hebrew scholar said, that word is single. But Paul knows Hebrew too. He says, uh, the Scripture does not say and seeds," meaning many people. So do you see what he's saying? The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, singular, singular and the Scripture does not say and seeds." It's not, not all of his ancestors, but to one particular male person. So, so the scripture does not say, and the seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person. And Paul is thinking, of course, of Genesis 15, who is Christ. It's a picture of the gospel. In Romans 16, 20, Paul writes, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Certainly Paul had this in mind when he wrote Galatians 4.4. I love this verse. But when the time had fully come, or I like to just translate it, at exactly the right time that God had already chosen in the past, God sent his son, that's Jesus, born of a woman, born under law. So, the son would be born of a woman, not a human father, without a human father who would redeem the human race. That's the virgin birth in Isaiah 7, or the virgin conception is a better way to put it. So the seed 
of the woman refers to the whole human race ending with Messiah Jesus. So Genesis 3.15 is referring to Jesus, and it is full of hope in this hopeless situation. Now, there's also the phrase, the seed of the serpent, but clearly that does not represent little snakes being born. It represents anyone who shares the nature of Satan. And some would say, well, like, where does he come in in all of this? Well, Paul talks about that when he talks about the spiritual warfare we're in. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Uh, one of my professors in seminary uh, talked to, uh, uh, he was somewhat of an expert in sort of the whole idea of the Bible and spiritual warfare. And one of the things he said is that when you study everything the Bible has to say uh, about the forces of evil and Satan and evil angels and all of these things, uh, he says you find out they're really organized, really organized. And therefore, we have to realize that we're in a spiritual battle that's organized against us. That's why we need one another. That's why we need uh, to depend upon the Holy Spirit. That's why we need to know the Word of God. Now, look at verse 16. To the woman, to the woman, he said, God said. So here's what happens because of her sin. I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he'll rule over you. Now, the New Living Translation, I think, gets it just right here. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. This is a picture of Eve trying to control her husband who didn't protect her from Satan's deception. Now, Colossians 3.19 reads, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So now, married life becomes a struggle. When I say now, I mean in this process, back, it was, we're back in Genesis 3 here. So now married life becomes a struggle of who's in charge, who will dominate, who will dominate. And Alan Ross, I like the way he puts it. He writes, it will be the challenge of godly people to remove such tension from a marriage and live above the curse as far as possible. Marriage should not be a relationship characterized by manipulation and mastery. We'll see that next week. That is what sin will produce in a marriage, manipulation and mastery. So this kind of desire and, and mastery are not ideals to live up to. They will be there naturally. The passage is not speaking of New Testament submission or headship. Those are traits that had to be engendered by the Holy Spirit in the believer to take the sting out of the curse. No, these oracles simply declare what life will be like now that sin is here, and try as one may, there will be pain, conflict, and death. Now, the New Testament gives us much instruction on marriage and submission in marriage. Husbands, we are to love our wives in the same way that Christ loved the church. We're to love our wives sacrificially in order that our wives may become all God wants them to be. And we can do that because every Christian has the Holy Spirit. 
And because that's true of every single one of us, all we have to do is to submit to the Word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, and then we can treat our wives the right way. And if we do so, wives will gladly submit to their husband's example, and the marriage will be filled with joy rather than discord. It's talking about two Christians being married. So here's the question now. Why the curse? That's the question. Why the curse? It is because of the disobedience of both Adam and Eve. They were free to obey or not to obey. We are free in the same way. But we're not free to choose the results of our sin. We suffer the results, the consequences of our sin. So the purpose of all this pain and toil is to turn us toward God, our Creator. It's a picture of God's grace. We should never be at home in this world. There will always be conflict, and it should point us to something better to come in eternity. There is innate in all of us the idea that evil in the world, suffering and pain and injustice are not right, that there should be some solution that should cause us to turn to God and call on Him, and if we do, He will come running to us like the father after the prodigal, and give us faith to know there is a time coming, you know this verse well, Revelation 21, 4, when he will wipe every tear from our eyes and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Now look at verse 17. To Adam, now we come to the man, he said, because you listened to your wife, and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Curse it as the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles. They didn't have any thorns or thistles yet for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground Remember, we studied this last week a little bit. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, we're all dust people, and to dust you will return. So, so much for the promise of Satan that they would be like God. The serpent, Satan, caused sin to enter the human race. The pain of childbirth would bring the one who would reverse the curse. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law when he was hung on the cross. He took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. And then it's an Old Testament quote, for it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus became a curse for us so that we're no longer controlled by the curse if we will submit to the Spirit of God and the Word of God uh, and, and be among the people of God. From the result of Adam's lack of faith in God's word, we now see this renewed faith in what God has said. Now, they had not yet had children, but Adam believed what God said about future children. Look at verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve. Maybe you might have been wondering why wasn't she called Eve all this is he hadn't named his wife yet. That's why I said the woman and all that, and I used her name anyhow. Adam named his wife Eve. Now, Eve sounds like 
a Hebrew term that means to give life. So Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Isn't that amazing? Yes, Adam understood they were going to die. He understood that. But he also saw God's grace by faith, as we do every time we have a baby dedication. By faith. Adam knew he was dying, but he heard the promise of verse 15 and therefore renamed his wife Eve, meaning the life giver. Eve, the woman, represents the survival of the human race. Eve represents victory over death. Eve was to be Adam's helper, but now she becomes Adam's source of redemption. Her new name, Eve, points to her destiny. So now we see God's grace and mercy. God supplied garments of animal skins to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame. Blood was shed because of their sin. An animal had to die because of their sin. And this would be clear to those who first read Genesis uh, as they understood the need for animal sacrifice because of their sinfulness. And the New Testament says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, Hebrews 9, 22. Jesus, born of a woman, the seed of the woman, shed his blood on the cross for our sins once and for all, the innocent dying for the guilty. Now look at verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now that's grace. They sure didn't deserve that. And God did it for them. The fig leaves were man's attempt to cover the shame. The animal skins were God's provision to cover their shame. And in verse 22, it says, And the Lord God says, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Who's us? Well, the us here refers to the unity of the Godhead, the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And still in verse 22, uh, communicating among themselves, he must not, the man must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. You see, Adam and Eve now knew good and evil, and they had chosen wrongly. They still had the ability to choose, and they knew where the tree of life was. If they were to stay in the garden, they would live in their sinful state forever, separated from God. So now we have what I like to call severe mercy. Severe mercy seems hard when it ministers, but it's good in the end. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 23. So the Lord God banished them. Well, him, but the both of them. From the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. So this is a picture of all things working to their good. They now were away from the tree of life and unable to return. In verse 24, it says, it's very strong language here. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, a cherubim is an angel, and the sword represents something that looked like lightning, actually, when you understand the words. It was not in the cherubim's hand, but it kept anyone from trying to enter the garden. And, and someone might ask this kind of question I would ask, well, what happened to the garden? Oh, that's easy. His name is Noah. The flood. That was the end of the garden. 
Now, final question, and we'll finish. Were Adam and Eve saved? Have you ever wondered that? In Hebrews chapter 11, we read this. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. How are you saved in the Old Testament? By faith in God. Faith saves them. In Genesis chapter 4, just the first verse, and we'll do all of chapter 4 next week. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. So Adam and Eve believed God by faith, and they taught their children about God, as we'll find out next week, and made sacrifices to God. But they were now safe in God's grace-filled arms. Sin, Satan, safety. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I just uh, thank you for this story this true story of how not only as we studied chapter 1 and 2, we understand the creation and all of that, but now we can see where sin entered the world and we can learn so much from this chapter, especially we learn that you already had a plan for the future and his name is Jesus and he came and died for our sins And because we're all sinners because of Adam, we can all be saved because of Jesus. And I pray that everyone here knows that. And if there is anyone here or watching online that doesn't, I pray that they would just agree that they're sinners and just call out to God. All you would have to say is a prayer like this. Oh, God, I'm a sinner. I want to turn from my sin. I want to live for you. I believe Jesus lived, he died, and he rose from the dead. Save me, and God will save you then you must become part of a local church and be discipled and learn the Word of God and read the Bible and learn how to walk in the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.